And as you're being seated this morning, would you grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus 25. Exodus 25, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 for us this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is a contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ramskin, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching and hearing of his word. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word this morning. May we sit beneath it. May its truth not only inform our minds, but transform our hearts. The Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been homesick before? Have you ever been away from home so much and so long that you missed your own house, your own bed, your family, so much that you would have given anything in that moment to just be home again. Those questions make me think of that famous scene in The Wizard of Oz. So Dorothy, towards the end of the film, longing to get home, finally finds out the way to get home. So she taps her shiny red shoes together and says, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. And then the scene cuts, and we now find Dorothy awaking in her Kansas farmland home. When I was six years old, I got lost in the Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a big mall. I was a little kid. It's a terrifying thing to get lost in that place because it's so big, there are so many strange people, and you kind of don't know where to go and where you are. And when I was lost, looking around for the babysitter who I had run away from, it was definitely my fault, my one desire, my one wish was, I just want to go home. And yet, as a six-year-old, I had no clue what my address was. I couldn't even told anyone where I lived. And in some ways, that six-year-old experience and longing that I had mirrors the state of mankind and the storyline of the Bible. We are lost people longing for home, and yet we don't know the address. So we keep going into all the wrong houses. We have a sense that there's no place like home, and I want to go back there, but we don't know where home sweet home is. So we keep getting the wrong address. Well, the Bible teaches us that there is a home sweet home. There is a answer to our longings. And that home sweet home is God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence. That's home, according to the Bible. Home is not where the heart is. Okay, you take that off of your kitchen area. Home is where God is. That's the answer the Bible gives. But you may be asking, well, isn't God everywhere? Meaning that home is everywhere. 
yes and no. God is certainly everywhere. He is the creator of space. Therefore, he is not limited by it. Instead, God fills all spaces in all places with all of his fullness. There is nowhere where God is not yet. The Bible also describes certain places where God uniquely and specially makes himself known and accessible to his people. One such place in the Bible is what I just read to you about, the tabernacle of the Old Testament. The tabernacle was God's earthly home sweet home. It was that unique and special place in the Old Testament with the Israelites where they could enjoy God's presence in a unique and special way. And I bring all this up because over the next about nine Sundays or nine Sundays this summer, we are gonna take a tour of God's house. This is Cribs God Edition, okay? We're gonna take a tour of God's earthly home and see its significance for us. And here's the main kind of overarching point I wanna communicate in this series as we look at Exodus 25 to 40. The main point is this. The tabernacle, God's earthly home, was specially designed by him with all of its furnishings and all of its functions to be for us a visual symbol of vital spiritual truths. So God designed his home in such a way that when we looked at its furniture, when we saw how it was meant to function in the life of the Israelites, he intended it to communicate to us some vital spiritual truths. Well, what are those spiritual truths? Well, I think they fall under four main categories. First, the tabernacle is intended to be a window into the character of God. Just as you can learn something about an artist by studying their artwork, we can learn some things about the architect of the tabernacle by looking at how he designed it in its furnishing and its functions. So as we look through this series, we're going to ask the question, what does this teach us about what God is like? And secondly, the tabernacle is a mirror for the sinfulness of mankind. So as we examine the various aspects, how people had to approach God's house, we're going to ask the question, what are the consequences of sin in our lives? What are the effects of sin on our relationship with God? What are our fundamental needs before a holy God as sinful people? Well, third, the tabernacle is a shadow of the work of Christ. The most important question we're going to ask. His, the shadow of Christ is cast all over the tabernacle. So to understand the tabernacle rightly is to understand the person and work of Christ better. But the reverse is true. To understand the person and work of Christ rightly is to understand the tabernacle better. There is a interconnected relationship between the tabernacle and the person and work of Christ. So we're going to ask the question, how does the tabernacle prefigure and point to the person and work of Christ? And finally, the tabernacle is a compass or guide for the Christian life. The tabernacle was considered the touch point between heaven and earth. It was the meeting place between God and his people. So God would say to Israel in his covenant promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. Well, the tabernacle is a visual demonstration of that truth. And it's also visual instruction on how that truth is meant to look like, what it looks like to live out that truth. So we're going to ask the question, what does the tabernacle teach us about how we are to live in fellowship with God as the people of God? So you have those, those four categories, window into God's character, a mirror into our sinfulness, to um, a shadow of the work of Christ, and a guide and compass to the Christian life. So think of those four categories as light traveling through a prism. So when light comes 
it's, it's one thing, right? But when it hits a prism and it comes out the other side, what happens? It breaks out into this multifaceted, beautiful, kind of picturesque color, almost like a rainbow. So what we're going to do is as the light of God's revelation passes through the tabernacle and it comes out the other side, it comes out in this beautiful, multifaceted theology lesson, teaching us about God, about our sin, about Christ, and about the Christian life. But what I want to do this morning in this introductory sermon is I want to, I want to zoom out before we zoom in. And I want to do that because in the weeks to come, we're, we're going to zoom in. We're going to look at specific things like the altar, the, the wash basin, the, um, the curtain in the tabernacle, all these various things. But before that, we need to zoom out and see that the tabernacle doesn't just come out of nowhere. God didn't redeem Israel out of Egypt, bring them into wilderness and say, you know what? I really like camping. Let's build a tent. It's not how it happens. Instead, the tabernacle that God is telling Moses to build, that Israel will build, is part of a thematic thread that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation in your Bible. So we're going to cover Genesis to Revelation today. I'm not going to read it all, but we're going to cover it all in in a manner of speaking. And the heart and essence of this thematic thread is found in verse 8 of of Exodus 25. Look there with me. God says this, Let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst. This is the essence of the theme of the tabernacle, right here. And though this verse may not look like much, this verse is in many ways like that wardrobe that Lucy Pevensey walks into when she's playing hide-and-go-seek in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. She thinks she's just walking into a wardrobe, and instead what she does is she enters into a whole big, massive world called Narnia. So what we're going to do is we're going to enter into this text and see the thematic thread that it connects us to all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So let's start tracing this theme of God's dwelling place by looking at that once upon a time section in your Bible in Genesis 2. You can turn there with me if you want to follow along. We'll be jumping around, but you can follow along. In Genesis 2, we come to Eden, the original dwelling place of God. So we're going to title this section, Paradise, the First Edition. Okay, and I, I'm choosing that title very intentionally because it's going to help me with alliteration throughout the rest of the sermon, but also because that English word paradise comes from a Greek word which means beautiful garden. And that's exactly what Eden was and yet much more than that. This was not your average garden because it was not planted by your average gardener. So if you look at Genesis 2.8, it tells us this. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So just as God is the architect of the tabernacle who gives specific instructions that Moses is to follow, God is the designer of the original dwelling place. He is the gardener of this garden that we find in Genesis 2. And Genesis 2.9 tells us that God's garden was brimming with beauty and delicacies for the eye to see and the mouth to taste. Look at verse 9 of Genesis 2. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. And then Genesis 2.10 shows us that Eden was also a lush, flourishing place of abundance. Look at Genesis 2.10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So what this is telling us is that Eden never lacks a water supply to sustain it. So in ancient Near East, if you wanted to build a city, where'd you build it? Right next to a river, right next to a flowing, gushing water supply. And so Eden is a place that is constantly teeming and thriving with life. 
But as the advertisements say, wait, there's more. Look at Genesis 2.12. It informs us that Eden was not only a lush garden paradise, but it was luxurious as well. Genesis 2.12. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. So Eden is rich with the most precious resources you can find on earth. And interestingly, to make a connection to the tabernacle, these same precious materials that are found in Eden are is what's going to be used to build the tabernacle and later the temple. In fact, that's just what uh, the Lord asked Moses to ask an offering for. You thought I was reading this because we were going to start like a building campaign today. That's not what this is about. Most importantly, though, the Garden of Eden was a paradise because God was present there with his people in a unique and special way. The first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, got to live in God's dwelling place, enjoying God's presence, unlike anyone else since. Truly, Adam and Eve were the only ones who could sing these famous hymn lines. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Really, Adam and Eve are the only ones, in a sense, who can sing those lines. Because it was true. None other has ever known that. Now, just as a tabernacle is a window into the character of God, so also is the Garden of Eden. We can learn some things about what God is like because his character is reflected in his work, in his garden. So how does Eden help us answer the question, what is God like? Well, here, I just want to give one answer. We could spend all day answering this question. Eden helps us see that God is the living and life-giving God. Eden is a place brimming and teeming and overflowing with life because that's what God is like. His garden is like him, brimming and overflowing with life. Now, when we say that God is the living God, I hope you understand, we mean more than that God is alive as opposed to not being alive. It means so much more than that. We mean that God is the fountain of life. He is a self-sustaining, never drying up, gushing waterfall of life. Think of Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've had the privilege to see Niagara Falls, but you stand before it and it is just constantly pouring over with water. And it is majestic and it makes you feel small. That is a little slice of what it feels like to stand before God's presence. He is constantly overflowing with life. And this is why Jesus says in John 5, 26, the Father has life in himself. The Father has life in himself. God has never celebrated a birthday. He's never blown out birthday candles because he is from everlasting to everlasting. On Mother's Day or Father's Day, God doesn't sit down to write on a card and say, hey, thanks, mom or dad, for bringing me into this world. Because there was never a time when God was not. He is the uncreated one. God never has to go outside to get a breath of fresh air. Because he is not dependent on anything outside of himself. Because he has all life within himself. Instead, the the opposite is true. In him, we live and move and have our being. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So one implication of this is that If you want to experience life, which is truly life, the kind of life that Jesus promises, I came that they may have life and life abundantly, you must know that it can only be found in a relationship with the Lord, a saving, by faith in Christ, living fellowship with the life-giving God. When we try to go to other fountains other than the fountain of life, you will find that it will leave you unsatisfied. It will leave you searching constantly and hungering and thirsting for more because it does not satisfy. Augustine said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. 
hearts will be lifeless until we find that he is our life. Well, sadly, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy, which will provide life for him. That's, that's history. If you want to sum it up, that's what it is. And so the first chapter of that long, terrible, sad story of human history is found in Genesis 3, where we see paradise lost. So Eden, this lush, brimming, teeming with life garden, is a garden that is full of provision and permission. You may eat of every tree in the garden, except for one prohibition. There's one in Genesis 2:17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What is this tree? Why is it there? What, is it, what does it signify? Well, to understand the significance of this tree, I think it's helpful to contrast it with some later statements that are given in the wisdom literature of the Bible, like the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So for example, Psalm 111.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice the fear of the Lord have a good understanding. So what later biblical revelation says about the fear of the Lord means this, if you would have real wisdom, if you would have true knowledge, if you would have the intellectual and moral ability to know good from evil, wisdom from foolishness, you must live in the fear of the Lord. Now, we don't mean fear in the sense of that kind of that childhood terror of something you're afraid of. You know, there's, a, there's a shadow in the closet, got to yell for mom and dad. Not that kind of fear, but fear in the sense of having the highest reverence, the utmost respect for God and who he is because he's the creator, you're the creature. He is all sufficient and you are always dependent. He is in charge and you are not. Acknowledging all of that, that is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and leads to a good understanding. Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil inverts all that. It represents the rejection and the reversal of what the fear of the Lord stands for. God is creator, I'm creature. I'm dependent, he's always sufficient. So to reach for the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is to reach out for autonomy, for independence, for rebellion, for intellectual and moral autonomy. That's what it represents. So if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil could sing, it would sing Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. That would be the song that would be playing next to it. Or if it had a poetic slogan on its fruit, it would be this line from John Milton's Paradise Lost. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That would be the advertisement slogan on the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the exact lie that the serpent feeds Adam and Eve. Better to reign in hell than to serve it. Be like God. And it leads them to feast in rebellion on the forbidden fruit. And what they discover is that the rejection of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of death. Embracing the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Rejecting the fear of the Lord is the beginning of death. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, the wages of sin always pays in death. So just as the tabernacle holds up a mirror so we can see our sinfulness before a holy God, so also does this eating, the scene in Genesis 3 and its consequences. The effects of sin as they originally entered the world in Genesis 3 help us answer the question, what are the effects of our sin on our relationship with God? One, sin drives us from God's presence. Sin always drives us away from the Lord. Look at Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God 
walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So this is written as if this was a normal occurrence. This was part of the fellowship. God walked among them. But something changes this time. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what Adam and Eve are experiencing is a form of death. The death of their perfect fellowship with God in their state of innocence is now gone. In their state of innocence, their instinct would have been to greet God, to, to meet with him, to have fellowship with him. And now, in their state of sin and shame, a new instinct is embedded in them. It's to flee and to run away from the presence of God. Sin always ruptures relational harmony. Sin breaks the superglue that is to exist in relationships and severs us from one another and from the Lord. And you've perhaps had this experience in your own life. Maybe you've thought this before. How can I pray right now to the Lord when I just lost it on my kids or spouse or friend that way? How can I come before God in prayer? Or how can I sing these songs to the Lord this morning when I have been a hypocrite so much lately? Or Lord's Supper is there. It's not there today, so just pretend in your mind it's there. And you're thinking, how can I take the bread? How can I take the cup when I have, when I have this record that I have this week? There's, there's no way I can. Those thoughts reveal that one of the effects of sin on our relationship with God is to drive us away from him rather than draw us toward him. We want to distance ourselves from him in prayer, singing, whatever. But it actually gets worse, okay? Sin not only drives us away from God's presence, it makes us unfit for God's presence. Look at Genesis 3, 23 and 24. The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. And verse 24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. These warrior angel cherubim right here are going to be woven into the curtain of the tabernacle that is going to separate the holy place from the holy of holies. And what it represents, as one of my favorite children's books says, it is God's big keep out sign. Keep out. And it reminds everyone that it's wonderful to live with God, but because of your sin, you can't come in. It is wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. And so from this point forward, you could say that the, the rest of the storyline of the Bible is seeking to answer the question of Psalm 24.3. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who is it? Who's going to bring us back into the paradise of God? How can humanity get back home? Well, this is where we need to get into the DeLorean time-traveling machine, and we need to go much faster. Because I'm in Genesis 3, and we're going to end in Revelation 22. So we're, we're going to go kind of at lightning speed here as we start to look at what does it look like when God starts to restore paradise. Well, the restoration of paradise is initially pictured by the tabernacle. Listen to how Psalm 84, the psalmist of Psalm 84, describes his longing for God's earthly home, the tabernacle. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, why does the psalmist say that? Does he just really like camping in the wilderness? Or does he recognize something about that tent in the wilderness that is unique and special? The psalmist says this because he recognizes that the tabernacle is, in a sense, Eden restored. 
where you can say Eden kind of remixed. It is the closest thing on earth to the restoration of paradise. And think of the relationship between the true paradise and the tabernacle as like the relationship between an actual building and a model rendering of a building. So uh, when Alton neighborhood was being built on, on Donald Ross, wherever that is, maybe behind me or something, they, they didn't have any model homes up yet, but they had like a, a sales center. So my mom was in town and I took her there because I thought if she just sees this place. This is going to draw her heart to Florida. This is going to bring her money and her time down here so I can take advantage of all of it. It hasn't worked yet. <laughs> so for the first part of the tour, what they do is they bring you into the sales center and they you know, get all your information so they can spam you. But then they bring you into this area where they show you a 3D model of what Alton will look like once it's all finished, once it's all done. And if you go there today, it looks exactly what the model depicted of it. But it, it wasn't the real Alton but it was an accurate picture of it. And that's the relationship that the tabernacle has to the true paradise. It is a model rendering, as it were, a replica of it. Sadly, though, like the original paradise of Eden, the earthly dwelling place of God becomes defiled, polluted by mankind's sin. So God not only sends Israel away, like he did Adam and Eve, but he himself goes away. So when you open the book of Ezekiel, you get this strange prophecy and vision where Ezekiel sees the glory presence of God lift up from the temple, get on this wagon, and drive away. He leaves it empty. And so at that point, Ezekiel's ministry, the tabernacle is no longer a picture of paradise restored. It's a reminder of paradise lost once again because of their sin. Because of your sin, you can't come in. And then we turn the pages of our Bible to the New Testament. I told you we're going to go fast. And we see the restoration of paradise purchased by Christ. John opens his gospel, that famous opening in John 1, and he connects the tabernacle of the Old Testament with the person and work of Christ. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. And what does he do? Dwells among us. Literally tabernacles among us. And we have seen his glory. That glory cloud that dwelt over the tabernacle is seen now in Christ. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the dwelling place of God, John says, has come among us, but not in a physical structure, but in the form of a man. So we could change those lines from that famous Wesley Christmas hymn. Veiled in flesh, the tabernacle see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That's what John 1:14 is all about. And what we see in Jesus' earthly ministry is that like the Father, life seems to be springing up wherever Jesus walks. In his miracles, It's as if Jesus is pulling up all the weeds of the curse that have overgrown into paradise and he's planting new, fresh flowers that are brimming in a new garden that he is restoring. So when John the Baptist wonders to Jesus, hey, are you the Messiah? Here's how Jesus responds. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. So Jesus is saying paradise is being restored through my ministry. But then Jesus makes a statement that like all the other statements he makes to the disciples is so shocking that they have no clue what he's talking about. He says this in John 12, 23 and 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They're thinking, this is great. I can't, I can't wait. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So thinking the Son of Man is going to be glorified, 
And then he talks about farming with them and, and, and wheat dying and, and seeds being scattered. What does he mean? What he means is that Jesus' life is going to be like that seed that is planted into the earth. And when seeds go into the earth, they die. But when they die, life springs up. Paradise is restored. Fruit is born from that death. That is Jesus' life. That's what he's come to do, to be that seed that goes in the earth, that dies, and that brings forth new life. And there's a connection to that and when Jesus is actually on the cross speaking to one of the criminals. So Jesus is suffering on the cross. He's crucified between two criminals. One rails against him and the other recognizes him. This is in Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you get into your kingdom. What does Jesus respond? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What is Jesus saying there on the cross? He's saying that not only has he come to restore paradise, but he's come to restore it in such a way that the gates will be flung wide open so that all sinners who repent of their sin, place their faith in Christ, will be with Christ one day in paradise. He is restoring it by his death and his resurrection. So the question of Psalm 24, 3, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Now has an answer. All who, through repentance and faith, cling to Christ, who alone is the one who opens the way back up into the presence of God. Well, now, where is the restored paradise of God? Can you go to the Middle East and and find it somewhere next to these rivers? No. It's found in a people, not a place. It's found in a people called the church. The church is the current earthly echo of Eden and foretaste of heaven. Listen to what Peter says about the church in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Does that sound a little bit like maybe the tabernacle or the temple? Here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Speaking to the church, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If, if Paul were a southerner, he'd say, Do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? It's not, he's not individually singling out one Christian. He's saying collectively, corporately, as the body of Christ, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. The church is the present picture of paradise restored. Well, finally, we turn to the closing chapters of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. And in these chapters, we get, as it were, the glorification of paradise unveiled to us. We get to kind of peer into that curtain that separates the holy place from the holy place. We get to see what it is like when paradise is not only restored, but glorified, perfected. Here's what it looks like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
And what is this paradise like? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Neither shall there be mourning, and death shall be no more, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he continues, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, there's now one tree, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. It's one of the closing descriptions John gives us of paradise glorified is a picture of a new river of life with the tree of life there that everyone can come and take and eat from freely. So once you can say the storyline of the Bible is marked by three trees. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the rebellion and sin of humanity. Then at the end, you have the tree of life, which is open to humanity. But in the middle, you have the tree, the cross, the one on which the son of God was slain for us to open the way back up to paradise. As he's hanging on that tree, what does he say to the criminal? Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is what the theme of the tabernacle is all about. God's earthly dwelling place is a replica of its, the original paradise. It's a reminder that paradise has been lost and because of your sin, you can't come in. But also, it is a picture, a glimpse of what paradise restored and glorified will look like. And so in seeing this and understanding this theme, we should sing with the psalmist in Psalm 84, Lord, I dearly love your presence more than words can ever tell. How I yearn to see the beauty of the courts in which you dwell. Better humble godly service than a home where sin holds sway. Better one day in your presence than a thousand far away. Let's pray.